0: And and no doubt. And because you're involved in this every single day, if I have a CRM system, a crisis suddenly makes the CRM much smarter because now I can go in and I can look at all my customers and I can make phone calls and send emails and I can do it very quickly right from the system. Whereas if if I don't have that, I'm doing it through an Excel spreadsheet or some paper, which takes way, way too much time.
1: Hello and welcome to Banking on Disruption. I'm Fred Cavena. This episode, I am stoked to welcome Jack Hubbard. Jack and I delve into the evolving role of trust in banking. As a seasoned banker and bank advisor, Jack takes us on a journey to explore how consistent communication, a customer-centric culture, and effective utilization of digital platforms can dramatically transform your customers' banking experience. From the art of establishing trust-based selling to the role of leadership in nurturing a successful culture, this episode delivers a rich blend of insights and practical advice. So grab your pen and notebook and be ready to take a leap forward in your banking journey. Due to extensive travel commitments for myself and our other Roundtable members this week, we weren't able to record a quick take segment for this episode. But don't worry. Quick Takes will be back in two weeks. While you're listening to this podcast, why not take a moment to follow us on LinkedIn at the Banking on Disruption podcast and on Instagram at, at Banking on Disruption. Now sit back and strap in because our show is coming to you right now. And welcome back. I have to say that one of the things that has been on my mind this year has been the evolving role of trust in banking. And I don't see evolving in that it matters less. In fact, if I took anything away from the mini crisis earlier this year, is that the speed of digital means that trust is even more critical. And now I think I've got the right guy to explore what this means. On this episode, I'm joined by one of the nation's top 100 most trusted business leaders by Trust magazine, Jack Hubbard. Now, Jack shared his passion for what it takes to build trust based sales initiatives in banking since 1973. He's one of banking's most sought-after facilitators whose expertise and out-of-the-box thinking puts him in great demand. Jack's a regular keynote presenter for state and national banking associations and is instructed at 13 of the nation's top banking schools. Now, if you spent any time on LinkedIn like I do, you've probably seen and benefited from Jack's content, where he hosts two weekly LinkedIn live shows and podcasts called Jack's Rants with Modern Bankers and Jack Rants with Bryn. Today, Jack is managing partner of The Modern Banker, and he also serves on the board of directors of St. Charles Bank & Trust, a $2.5 billion affiliate of Wintrust Financial in Illinois. Welcome to the podcast, Jack. Thanks for joining.
0: Well, thank you, Fred. Thanks for that great introduction, and I better be good after all that.
1: Well, I have no doubt, uh, as, as, a, as a fan and, and regular listener of your content, I'm excited to to be bringing your insights to, to our audience. And I just want to kick it off, you know, pretty easily by saying, from your perspective, how have you seen the landscape of banking change when it comes to the role of trust and relationships with customers?
0: Well, to be Captain Obvious, the, the customer has changed an awful lot, Fred, and, and we could talk about that forever, but I, I think everybody kind of gets that. You know, when I started banking in 1973, we used ledgers, not laptops. And it it was a lot more personal. And thank God, in some ways, things have changed because it was pretty antiquated. But one of the challenges that we have is that people don't have a lot of perspective. You know, I was was teaching up at Graduate School of Banking this summer, and most of the kids, and I call them kids because they're younger than me, virtually everybody younger than me, and they hadn't gone through any of the things that I had gone through. And so what happens is over the years, I mean, if you think about it, back in 1980, the prime rate was 20 and a percent. That was the highest it ever got. We had the real estate crisis in 1987. In between that, we had the SNL crisis. Then we had 2008, we had 9-11, we had the pandemic, and now we have this. So trust is rebuilt and then taken away as the pendulum continues to swing the biggest problem is consistency of communication one of the people i follow a lot in banking is james robert lay and he's so good from a from a communications perspective and so it's interesting when i when earlier in the year when when this whole thing hit the fan i i went out that weekend and i hit 20 bank websites and i looked to see if there was any communication out there with anybody that said, look, we're, we're a five-star Bauer rating, here's what that means. We're well capitalized, Here with that, here's what that means. Big banks, community banks, and only one bank, one out of the 20, had done anything on their website to respond to this really important thing. So I think part of it is the lack of trust means lack of consistency and lack of communication. I think the third thing is incongruence within the culture. If you look at banks' websites, they'll say wonderful things, like all bank, all websites do. But if you get behind the curtain and you really look at it, what bankers are facing is higher quotas, higher goals, less people, and a, a lot of pressure. And so when we have a culture of quarterlies, as I call it, we, we have that incongruence of we want to put the customer first, but we also got to push widgets. And, and that's a real challenge.
1: No, it is it is a huge challenge, and I think it's one one of many. I was surprised, and I'll dig into it a little bit. You know, do you think that the website would be enough? You know, you mentioned you, you looked at these these websites; only one had anything. Is that enough? Like, is that a, in in this digital world? Is that what you're you're thinking that customers are expecting? I remember, you know, I was I was also a, a bit of a student of the response and. I put out a few blog posts and a white paper afterwards about, you know, how communication should play a critical role and, and potentially could have changed some of the outcomes for some of the banks. And I remember one bank, and I am horrible at remembering which one it is, but I'll, I'll put in the show notes, their their president or their chairman, one of the two, went out and emailed in a blast email, here's my phone number. If you have any questions about our solvency and where we are from a liquidity perspective, Give me a call. Now, obviously, that doesn't scale up if you're a, a super regional or a national bank, but what what really should banks be doing in this digital age and what are the customer expectations on that type of outreach?
0: Well, it's a, it's a really good point. And, and when I went out to the websites, it's the weekend. And I think in the past, a lot of banks have believed, well, the customer's kind of dormant on the weekend. They don't think about their money. But but my daughter's company's payroll account was at SVB. So they're thinking, and and she was going to get paid on Friday. And so now we're thinking about this seven days a week. So you're exactly right. The website is one thing, but banks are still not using LinkedIn as effectively as they could. They could be messaging their top customers. I'll tell you a quick story. When, when the pandemic hit and I was with St. Myron Hubbard at the time we, our people put out video messages. We taught them how to do video messaging on their phones through LinkedIn. And if you're a first degree connection, you can actually send a video message between six seconds and a minute. That really calms the water. So I love what the bank president did and you're exactly right. The communication is just not the website. It's gotta be one-to-one, it's gotta be phone calls. If I was a bank president, I would have had my branch managers in a training Saturday morning, pay them over time and say, here, I want you to call your top 15 customers. Those are the kind of things that we need to do to respond to things because things happen so fast these days. And that's part of your question. Things have changed so much because things change so fast all the time.
1: All the time. And I, and I love that point. I think it's funny, you know, you're mentioning, you know, in a in bygone era, banks would assume that nobody's thinking about their money on the weekend. I think that really... The bank's not thinking about it on the weekend because that's their days off. For most regular folks in on Main Street, Saturday and Sunday, it might be the only days they have to think about what's going on with their personal, you know, finances. So I, I think it's important for a bank to be available in and respond when and where the customer has a question or a concern. And and this
0: is not gonna endear me to a lot of people, but and and I've mentioned it to my bank board and And, and you know, you just gotta be real, real careful. But the fact is that as the rates have continued to go up, here's another crisis of trust. You look at all the ads and you hear things that you drive by bank signs, and it says 5.4% CD for 11 months, new money. Well, wait a second. What happened to the loyalty for the customers who have been loyal to the bank and getting 0.25 on their money? Why don't we do something proactively to raise those rates? Because here's what happens, and I'm not an economist by any means, but I do know this, if you take a whole bunch of money out of the banking system and out of your community bank, it costs a lot of money to get it back. Why don't we just raise the rates and save some of that angst and save some of the money and build customer loyalty? Now, that isn't gonna endear me to a lot of bank presidents, and I'm not saying just en masse, Give everybody five point four percent. That's wrong. But what we do is, when rates go up, we raise lending rates really fast, and we deposits rates really slow. I just find that to be unconscionable.
1: Yeah, no, I I totally get that. And obviously, I think our audience you know, understands a lot of the complexities of of you know sometimes those loans are are fixed and they don't have the ability to to move up, you know, on the existing loan portfolio. But you're absolutely right. I mean. I spent a lot of time talking with banks about the acquisition cost for new customers, you know, what they're spending to to bring in money, you know, both both for liquidity purposes as well as to you know fund ongoing loan operations and investing some of that back into retention probably would pay a, a significant dividend, right? It's it's always cheaper to keep a customer than it is to attract a new one.
0: And and, and no doubt and because you're involved in this every single day if I have a CRM system, a crisis suddenly makes the CRM much smarter because now I can go in and I can look at all my customers and I can make phone calls and send emails and I can do it very quickly right from the system. Whereas if I, if I don't have that, I'm doing it through an Excel spreadsheet or some paper, which takes way, way too much
1: time. Absolutely. I mean, it, it CRM could absolutely help you understand who, who are your best customers, who should you be prioritizing to call, You know, quite frankly, you know, I I would use a mix of obviously, you know, you know, assets and, and value to the bank, recent sentiment, you know, somebody that's already had two or three bad experiences and now there's this crisis, they might make it to the top of the list, even if they're not the most profitable or largest, you know, depositor and doing that with 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 a CRM is is way, way easier than, than trying to figure it out based on, on recollection and, and people's, people's yellow pads on their desk. And, you know, hey, I, I know I talked to so-and-so last week, so I don't need to call them. That's that's not a very scalable solution. I, I'm curious, like, you know, what are the other obstacles? You mentioned, obviously, banks are under more and more pressure to to make sales, to, to grow deposits, to grow loans, to hit numbers. what What else is standing in the way of really building those trusted relationships?
0: Well, I think it starts with culture. I think it starts with the mindset that if you look at the Texas Rangers, okay, and, and they recently won the, the World Series, and if you watch the interviews right after the ball game, the whole tenor of this was we're building a culture here. We're, we, we brought in players that were a cultural fit for us, and we're a congruent culture. And so, so it really does start with, with, with that whole mindset of what kind of a bank or credit union do we want to be. Then it, then it comes down to some leadership. Okay. I, I, here's our culture, here's the message and everybody's going to play in this particular way, or you're not going to play. I remember I was doing a program for a bank in St. Louis and the bank president, this is many years ago and the bank, he, they might not say it this way today, but the bank president said, okay, we've, we've started this process. We've picked a company for the culture that we want, a trust-based culture. He said, there's a couple of ways you can go here. You can get on the train because it's moving really slow now. If you decide you want to get on the train later, maybe you can run to catch up with it. But the worst thing you could possibly do is to stand in front of the train because you're going to get run over. And what he meant by that is, I don't care if you're a superstar or or the brand newest player. This is our culture. This is the way we're going to do it. And if you stand in the way, you're going to need to go to another bank. So I think I think that whole idea of leadership makes a difference. And when I talk about leadership, I talk about not only the leadership at the top, but daily leadership. That whole idea, we're going to talk about coaching in a little bit, but that whole idea of behavioral leadership, shining a light on what the culture is and reminding us all the time. And then Fred, you'd see this every day, it's tools. I'll give you an example. So I was working with a bank and they had a a pretty good CRM system and they had the opportunity to turn on some triggers through the CRM and their core system. A trigger would say, hey, Mrs. Johnson had a a, a deposit, I had a balance of $29,000, she just took $12,000 out. And that trigger would be sent to the branch manager and they make the call and say, Mrs. Johnson, first of all, I just want you to know that your money is safe. And we noticed that you took a large amount out. I just want to make sure that that's what you wanted to do. Pause, listen for the answer. And then we have a dialogue about that. But you know what, Fred? The bank decided not to turn that on because it would cost too much money. So we invest in certain tools, but we don't invest in the kind of tools that could really help us. So I think it's a it's a big answer. And then the last thing I would say is, you got a, a, a guy that I trained a long time ago in North Carolina, one of the best sales managers I ever met, he gave me a phrase. He said, you can teach a turkey to climb a tree, but it's better to hire a squirrel. And my point in that is, you got to hire the right people. You don't want to hire just someone that can fog a mirror. You want to hire somebody that you know is going to be part of your culture and not toxic. And that's part of the problem with some baseball and football and basketball teams. They bring on a a superstar who's absolutely not a cultural fit. All they want is the ball and they don't fit in well. So it's a multifaceted answer, Fred. And the challenge, of course, is you got to keep doing this. I always tell people building a culture is like remodeling your house while you live in it. And it's never easy and it's never fun, but it's important to work on every single day.
1: Yeah, no, I I think that's spot on. I I love that. I think it's the importance of having that cultural fit. You know, I probably wouldn't endear myself to a lot of people talking about the Patriots, but I think that was a lot of their, you know, magic over the years. And and obviously, you know, a lot of the names, Brady and, and Gronk and others have become superstars, but they weren't recruited as superstars. And, you know, really this idea of, building a true team where every piece of the puzzle really matters. And I guess my, like, you know, my reframe back on that is how do you coach, you know, bank leaders, you know, executives, frontline, you know, branch leaders in the face of the, the targets aren't going away. Right. And, and we've all seen bad behavior in banks and really, really bad behavior in banks around targets. Targets aren't going away in, in the face of that pressure How do you coach them to ensure that they remember the relationship, they remember the importance of trust in those selling engagements?
0: Well, I think the first thing is you have to teach your leaders how to coach. Of course, before that even, you got to know that if you're going to promote someone into leadership, there's, there's a couple of companies out there that have done a lot of research And they find that only about 15% of top salespeople ever become top sales leaders. And what we do is we promote people to obsolescence because some people just don't want forms and ties and tied to their desk and they don't want to coach, they want to sell. So let's put the right people in the, in that seat. I always talk about Michael, Phil Jackson, the great coach of the Chicago bulls and Lakers wrote a, wrote a great book called sacred hoops. And he talks about this in his book and, and he talks about the fact that he would not want Michael Jordan coaching anybody because Michael is an MVP. But, but Phil Jackson was a great coach because he knew how to do it. He had the mindset around around that. So that's number one. Then you got to teach him how to do it, and then you got to hold him accountable. And boy, we hear this accountability word ad nauseum. Here's the problem: we have accountability in in thought and spirit, but no consequence. So people say, well, I'm going to hold people accountable to do behavioral meetings on a monthly basis. And then nobody observes them. Nobody watches them. If the meeting never changes, nothing changes at the bank. So there is no accountability. You can say the word all you want, but if there's no consequence to the accountability and consequence can be good and bad, the consequence to running a great meeting is better performance. The consequence to running a bad meeting is people wake up in the morning and they say, I got to go to a meeting. So this whole idea around leadership, so it's getting the right people, training the right people, and holding people accountable. And then there's multiple layers to this. If I'm a branch manager, my market manager needs to hold me accountable. If I'm a market manager, my regional manager needs to hold me accountable. And if I'm a regional manager, the president of the bank needs to hold me accountable. And when that accountability starts to go away up to the top levels, branch managers, they eventually say, this was just, this too shall pass. This this too shall pass. And I think one of the real challenges of our industry is that as we move up in the organization, we get coached less and less and less because people don't know how to coach us at our level. I'll just add one more thing on coaching. Phil Jackson said, everybody needs to be coached differently, but everybody needs to be coached. If I hire a brand new banker, if Tom Brady is a seventh round draft choice, which he was, I need to coach him differently than the starting quarterback but I need to coach him and I need to, I really need to focus on him. The Starting quarterback, I may need to do some tweaks. Tom Brady, I may need to spend a little bit more time. But if I'm I'm a senior person and I'm doing really well, I still need to have my manager go with me on joint calls. When Bob St. Meyer and I had our business, we would always go on joint calls together and we would coach each other and we're business owners. So I think the problem with coaching is at all of the things that I mentioned, and then the word itself, oh, I don't have time to coach. And what they're really saying is, eh, I don't want to do that. And what I'm seeing a lot is deal coaching, a lot of deal coaching going
1: on, and not a lot of behavioral So, So how does a, a bank fix that? I mean, I think the, the short answer is call jack. But Jack doesn't necessarily scale up to all of the institutions in the country. So, you know, if if a bank really decides at a leadership level that coaching is important, how do you fill those gaps? How do you get the the mid-level, the mid senior level leaders for whom, you know, coaching is not necessarily their, you know, their their default operating model? how do you get them into that coaching mindset and then on the other hand where do you find the coaches for the people that are senior in the organization
0: yeah that's a really good question finding them is is maybe easier than than getting them better if you've got someone that is not doesn't have coachability in their mindset they should never have been promoted in that position but if you've got somebody out in the field who really has that coachability mindset we need to find out though who those people are a and b test them before we hire them for the position that they're being hired for too often what happens is and we move up in organizations we're hired as a branch manager and we assume that as a branch manager we can do uh, all the branch manager things oh by the way since people aren't coming to the branches much anymore we want you to go out and make sales calls well, that might be easier when you're hiring a branch manager and telling them what the rules of the road are versus a 32 year old, a 32 year veteran branch manager who all of a sudden has to go out and make sales calls and they just aren't going to do it. So I got to find good people out there. And there's a lot of great testing out there. I like predict, Predictive Index, it will really help you determine okay, that's a good coach. And then we bring them in. From another, uh, from the other perspective, boy, that's a real challenge. And I think it goes to the person above them. Uh, if if you're brought in uh, as a salesperson and then you're, high, you're, you're elevated to coach, I got to stay on you as a, as a market manager. I got to work with you. I got to make joint calls with you. I got to continue to help you. And I got to find out, can you do it or can't you do it? And at some point, if you can't coach, we got to find something else for you to do it and it might be go be a salesperson because that's not a bad thing it just is what you do best that's a disney way that's the disney way and and good news for disney is they have thousands and thousands of people a community bank doesn't but before you promote that person into that new job you better think real carefully about that
1: well let, let me ask this and again to your point it, it may not scale down to some, some of the smaller institutions, but is the coach role for you critical that they be a, in, in the management line or is coaching a discipline where you could, you could bring in somebody to focus on coaching that maybe does not have all the rest of the responsibilities of, of running the P&L at a, at a market level or at a regional level?
0: Boy, that is such a great question. And and I think community banks that get to billion and a half, two billion dollars, that's what I'm seeing as a huge trend. Sales enablement departments, sales champions, sales managers. But here's the real key to that. Those people have got to report up to the president of the bank. They've got to have his or her ear and they've got to have his or her implied authority. And people need to know that they are not, those people, those sales leaders of those sales champions are not hired as just fluff. They are the eyes and ears of the president. And whatever they say, that's what the president wants you to do in, in the field. Yes, I'm seeing that a lot. And I think that's a, a real powerful way to help managers who want to be a lending manager but not a sales manager go do what they do best and then have people that are out in the field in coaching and getting people better. That that that's a great question.
1: No, and, and I, I think I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, I love the fact that you know you need to make sure that these people are seen as having authority. And and not just window dressing, right? They're not just there as an optional you can opt in, but that they they really do have the authority and can provide the accountability to produce the behaviors that that we want. I love it. I I think this has been fantastic so far. I'd like to switch a little bit now to, to talking less about the function of coaching and more about the delivery of the coaching. So I know you spent a lot of time working with banks on a lot of these behaviors. I'm sure you've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly as far as how relationship managers are trained from the ground up. You know, what What are the, some of the mistakes and and maybe some of the best practices that you've seen and shared around getting relationship managers on board with trust-based selling?
0: Well, let's start with the fact that we are providing training to people. You know, I'm still going out and it's it's more limited, but I'm going out and doing some sales training for bankers. And that's great. But you can bring in Jack Hubbard, Ned Miller, Nick Miller, Marty Cohen, Linda Richardson. You can bring them all in. And unless something changes after the training, the training money will go down the drain. There, there was a guy in Boston named Dave Stein. He's retired. And he did some studies and he found that about 92 percent of sales training went to waste because nothing changed after the training. The real key to sales training is what happens the next day. So here's one mistake that that bankers make. They do a lot of training, which is great in sales. Then they send their people back to the office and they don't execute on what they learned quickly. This is called the forgetting curve. 90% of the training goes to waste because people only get about 10% in the training and that 10% is lost within 48 hours if a banker doesn't do something. So here's a secret. When you all do sales training for your folks, go out and have them come to class with one appointment, either with a prospect, a COI, or a client that's underbanked. That client, prospect COI, is used as a case study throughout your training. Don't do fake case studies. Everybody knows they're fake. But when you do your real plays, not role plays during the class, you're actually getting them to prepare to go out and make the sales call. So now they have an appointment, by the way with this client prospector COI the day after the training. So now they're preparing all day for this training or for this call. And now they're gonna go out on the call the next day. So now what they've done is they've really taken their training and they're being held accountable because they're going out and actually using these skills the next day. I also think it's really important for a manager to accompany those bankers and watch and observe and, and make notes and then coach behaviorally after that. The third secret is don't talk about products. big mistake bankers make uh, on a first call is they want to pitch. Part of that goes back to our very first question of why why trust is, is going away or why trust is lacking. So instead of pitching a product, teach your bankers how to redirect away from the product and ask great questions. Buyer has the answers. Seller has the questions. Second, after you don't talk about a product, don't talk about the bank. Don't make a pitch. The third thing is leave something behind with something of value, whether it's from my friends at Vertical IQ or a white paper or something like that, nothing to do with the bank logo. And you don't talk about a product. So then you come back after that that call day and you debrief. And the way the managers debrief the call is, what opportunities did we uncover to help these people that you called on? That whole mindset shift goes away from product to customer. I'll tell you a quick story. I was doing a class in the middle of uh, 2023 with a bank, 20 bankers, not made many calls. We did it exactly the way I described. They prepared, we talked about questions, they went out and made their calls. They uncovered without talking about products, 100 million dollars in new opportunities and they've now closed 40 percent of those opportunities without ever talking about a product on the first call now eventually you have to but we have to get smarter about this and the last thing i'll say about training mistakes is one and done you and i both you travel more than i do now but i used to travel a ton and i i always respected the people in american airlines in the cockpit because I knew that they went back to the simulator all the time. And too often what happens is we either bring a motivational speaker in or we have a training on Veterans Day because the bank is closed and we think that'll do it. This is not a one and done. You can't be one hit wonders and be successful in a long-term performance culture.
1: No, I, I, I love. there's a lot of nuggets in there to unpack. I'll, I'll start with the end, which is, I agree hundred percent. And I think that I'd like to think that personally I do a lot of things to get value out of training, but you're not gonna pick everything up, right? And I, I kind of compare it to my golf game, and I'm I'm not a great golfer. I have destroyed many courses that I didn't deserve to set foot on. But, you know, when I'm when I'm thinking about my irons, I've got what, six, seven irons in the bag. H- how many irons do I use? I actually Put these little things on the on the on my clubs that help track, you know, when you use the right club and and that kind of thing. I usually use three or four irons over the course of of and it's not because I shouldn't use the other irons. Those are the ones that I'm used to. Same thing when you go through a sales training, you you learn six, seven, eight different techniques. You you naturally pick up two or three of them and you and you pound those, right? And they're getting results. You never go if you never go back. You never go back and figure out the other three, four, five techniques, and that's why I 100% agree that that finding those moments to go back, retrain, go back to the simulator are critically important. the The thing I want to dig more into, and and I think it leads into how to start building more authentic relationships. and And maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but. What I heard in the middle about going out, making those initial sales calls, not starting with a pitch, not starting with a product, is maybe like making your customer, your prospect feel like you care about them more than you care about what you're pushing, right? And I want to learn about your business. I want to learn about your objectives. I want to learn about how you see things going, is business up, is business down? Are you struggling with this? I mean, it's still a business conversation, right? You're not in there talking about, you know, golf and, and bourbon and, and cigars. I mean, a little bit of that, right? But it's it's mostly a business conversation, but it's about really feeling like like you care about what they want to do, not about pushing product their throat. Is that kind of where where you're going with it? Boy, that's right on target. You know, Fred,
0: people don't care how much you know they really care about how much you care. And so your product is static, but you've got to care. So, so one way to do that is to stop being a relationship manager. Now, that might sound like craziness to people, but the concept of relationship management has really become very bastardized. In a lot of cases, relationship managers are waiting for the phone to ring. What I try to teach people to do is to become a resource manager. When you are a resource manager, you are constantly providing value. You're always there to provide insights. You never leave a call without giving someone an idea. And and you talk about being authentic. My friend Larry Levine, who wrote an amazing book called Selling from the Heart, talks about the empty suit that goes out and makes a call, man or woman, uh, goes out and makes a call. You've got to be authentic. And when you when you really believe that you can be a resource and you articulate that and you constantly show it, now customers are not only going to bring you money in bushel baskets, they're going to tell everybody else about that. And now your world becomes so much, so much bigger. And you have a tool. The link. You mentioned I'm on LinkedIn a lot. And people all that people call me Grandpa LinkedIn because I'm 72, and they say, "How do you stay? You know, how do you stay on top of LinkedIn?" And I teach it every day, and that's a resource. You can be a, such a resource to people right on on LinkedIn. And bankers make a big mistake when they do when they when they become just a relationship manager, and that's not horrible. But if you're just a relationship manager that's just taking the order, your your relationships are significantly at risk.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I I and I've I've spent a lot of time in consulting, and I always tell the consultants that I work with. And I, I taught when I was at Accenture at, at the farm where where new consultants learn all the way up to senior consultants. Worst thing you can be as an order taker, right? You're if you're if you're sitting there waiting for the client to tell you what they want. There's no differentiator. They can, they can take that order to the, to the low-cost provider. Your value is to help them understand what they're doing in a broader context, right? A banker goes and visits a client in, in manufacturing. You know, they know their business really well. Banker probably has 10 manufacturers, 15 manufacturers, 20 manufacturers in their portfolio. Come with that perspective. Oh, you mentioned you had XYZ going on with your suppliers have you thought about this? Or, you know, here's an approach, you know, and and you're, you're adding that value that, oh, by the way, potentially could lead to a sale. Sometimes may not. Every single thing that you bring up is not necessarily going to lead to the next piece of business. But over time, I think a lot of it will. I think that bankers might have some anxiety first of the thing you said, I'm going to go make a sales call. I'm not going to talk about product. So let's let them a little off the hook. And how do you poach that transition from, okay, I went out, I had that initial, you know, discovery call or discovery visit. I learned a little bit about them. I I know what's important. Now I want to follow up now, you know, I got, I got the numbers. I got a hit. How do you, how do you transition from that initial, you know, learning about them to putting something in front of them that, that is, is on your, on your metric board?
0: Well, if, If all you have is one prospect, you better be closing that prospect. And I think one of the biggest challenges that that people have, that bankers have, is they don't have enough at the top of the funnel. That's number one. Number two, the way they're coached, it's, it's all about, and this really drives me just crazy, How many calls did we make? I talked to a banker recently and and he called me and he said, I saw something on LinkedIn I want to challenge you on. I said, great. He said, you know, we, you you talked about making calls, the number of calls that people make. He said, we have to do that or else our people wouldn't make the calls. I said, okay, when I was a banker, I I had to make 20 calls a week and I had to fill out a call report and it was a three-part form that was, uh, uh, was self carpeting. I kept a copy, copy went to human resources and a copy went on the president's desk. And I would drop the, the call reports off on, uh, on Friday night. So I, I dropped them off one day and I walked out of the office and I turned back around and the president, instead of looking at my call reports to make comments on them and provide feedback, he was wetting his finger and he was counting. One, two, three. And I thought, wait a second. I hate making sales calls. and I, But I'm filling out these call reports. So the following week, I gave the same call reports to them, And all he did was one, two, three. So people don't like making sales calls, but it goes back to how you coach them. Yes, indeed, we have to make a, some type of a solutions presentation at some particular point. And it may be after the third discovery call. My my opinion is you make an initial discovery call. You follow up with a conversational recap of what happened on the call within 48 hours, no doubt. You follow up with another phone call and another discovery call. If there's a partner you need to bring in, the partner comes in. And now you're really starting to get a sense of this business. And then at some point, you have to make a solutions presentation. Here's the problem. What the manager does when the banker comes back from the call is... What did you sell today? How many how many calls do you have left for the week? Not what 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 did you talk about? How did the call go compared to how you planned it? What are your next steps? What value did you provide? So it's all about this reinforcement, and then it goes back to something that you're really really good at, and that is uh, measurement and tracking. What we need to start to think about is we need to start stop worrying about how many calls people made and how many sales they made. We, those are, those are uh, lag measures. What we need to worry about is, how many prospects do I have in the, in the top of my funnel? Of those prospects, how many phone calls that did, did, did I made help me get an appointment? Of those appointments, how many were kept? Of those appointments that were kept, how many second calls did I make? What's my close rate? What's my average deal size? Those are the things that we should be measuring as bankers and not worrying about quotas and call reports and call uh, cold calls and blitzes. None of that's going to work anymore. We talked about it at the very beginning. This is a changing environment, and the customer is really tired of people coming in with coffee mugs and blitzes, better things to do in their day than worrying about, uh, about all that. And it goes back to this resource. What can I do now if if all I have is a bunch of discovery calls and I never get through to the second call. Okay. That's a coaching opportunity. I got in the door, but I didn't get back in the door. I need to make some joint calls to find out why that's the role of the coach.
1: No, I, I think that, I think that makes a lot of sense. One of the things I mentioned in the introduction was you've got a lot of out of the box ideas and, and i think you've shared some of them i wanted to ask about one in particular that people that are familiar with you may have already heard about but my understanding is you don't like cross selling no. and and I, you you and i we've both talked to a lot of banks Cro- cross selling is is something that that always gets raised with me you know specifically from like a systems perspective how do we how do we put more cross sale opportunities out there how do we you know surface these cross sale opportunities i'd like to hear you know your thoughts on What's, what's right, wrong, and indifferent with cross-selling?
0: Well, let's go back to our initial comment. When we, when we first started our, our interview, the whole idea of congruence is really important. So if somebody goes through sales training, whether that's delivered inside or somebody comes in from the outside, what they're going to teach people is behavior, how to change their behaviors, how to add value, how to ask great questions, and how to uncover the needs and priorities and, uh, of, of, the, of the buyer. Well, that's great. Problem is, when I uh, come back, uh, if there's no congruence around that, then what I do, if my manager says, what did you sell today? I'm going to come back and I'm going to change my whole behavior, not worry about the sales training. I'm going to sell a bunch of stuff. If, if I believe that needs-based or trust-based selling, consultative, whatever you want to call it, is really, really important, then we should call it something different than cross-selling. I believe we should call it cross-solving. Because if our goal is to initially solve people's problems when we bring them into the bank, then why don't we continue that process as we go forward? So, and, and a lot of people say, oh, that's just a spin or that's just semantics, but it really isn't. I've seen it in action. People that cross-solve, when they go out to their customers, they're asking them product, uh, pr- a problem-based questions, not product-based questions. People that cross-sell, their mindset goes to, well, they have a loan, but they don't have a deposit. I, and I'm behind plan on my deposits. I better push deposits. And I've even had bankers that were that were so focused by the bank on cross-selling that bankers would go, I've made joint calls with them, and they would go out and they would say to their customer, do me a favor, do me a favor, see my treasury management rep. That's not helping people. That's not helping. It's helping the bank. So- the whole, it, it goes back to the cultural mindset. You want to sell products, makes the customer a victim, cross-selling. If you want to solve problems and you want people to bring you money in bushel baskets and refer, cross-solving is really the answer.
1: So, so one thing in that, and I, and I love that example, w- one thing that I think is is potentially a, a stumbling block or something that needs to be solved for is more sophisticated product knowledge. Like one of the things I would think first off if if my banker came and said, "Do me a favor, talk to my treasury person," is they they don't really know what that treasury offering can do for my business, right? If they did, they could at least tie the request back and say, you know, I, I really, you know, I see you're, you're struggling with, you know, getting cash to all your locations and, and getting cash back into your locations. And you have some locations that are cash heavy and some that aren't, you know, I think our treasury solutions could really kind of help with that flexibility. How do you get bankers to want to learn more about product?
0: Yeah, that's always an age-old challenge, isn't it? And the problem is in the forgetting curve. If a banker, if a bank once puts thousands and thousands of dollars into product knowledge and they're trying to teach commercial bankers how to sell treasury management services, it's going to fail. It fails 100% of the time. However, if the bank says, here are three questions that I'd like to have you ask, to see if there's an opportunity for treasury management services to come in and help and they practice it and they see, Oh, that could be an occasion where I could ask that question. Now, you've got a real, a a real good foundation. And and I've seen it. We, We work with a $6 billion bank in the middle of the country. And the president was so frustrated because they weren't getting any referrals to treasury management. And, wanted to do all kinds of product knowledge. I said, now, before we spend the money on product knowledge, let's try this. And we gave them three questions and they practiced and the managers went over it at sales meetings. Their referrals to treasury management went up 200% in 60 days because instead of having to know the product, they knew who to call, they asked the questions and when they got the answer, it triggered, okay, I could bring in Sally. And it goes to this, Every banker, every, every customer thinks every banker knows everything about banking and that's obviously far from true. And it goes to any, any look, would you have Justin Fields be a left tackle? Well, of course not. That's stupid, but wait, he's a football player. So a banker needs a a commercial banker, a resource manager needs to understand the product that they, they sell a lot, pretty deeply. And then they need to know who are some partners that they can bring in and what are the occasions where the partner might come in to be able to help?
1: Yeah, no, I, I love that. And I think that I think that's a, a fantastic technique. Well, it's been a, a really dynamic conversation. There's been a lot of meat on the bone. I really appreciate the time today. I'd like to ask one last question, and and maybe it can kind of be a, a, a greatest hit, or like what would be your top tip? But if, if I'm a banker listening to today's broadcast, what would you tell them, like the one thing that they can do to really up their game at building trust and building more authentic relationships? Be a lifetime
0: learner. When I do banking schools, a lot of times I'll say, what, what sales book are you reading? Who's reading a sales book? And I'll have 200 kids in the class and nobody's raising their hand. So be a lifetime learner. Read, read, read. Follow people on LinkedIn, it's all the same answer. People like Anthony Inarino, people like Bryn Tillman, people like Meredith Elliott Powell, Chris Nichols, Mike McIntyre, Larry Levine, as I mentioned. Too often what happens is we think, okay, I've been to sales training, or I've done this and I've got a lot of experience, I know how to do that. It goes back to our pilot example. Pilots are always going back into the simulator to learn other kinds of things that will make them more effective for their passengers. We have to continue to do that. Sharpen your saw. Sharpen your saw. Continually learn, because if you don't learn every day, you die.
1: I love it. I couldn't agree more. Thank you, Jack. Really appreciate the time. Last thing, if our audience wants to connect with you, which I think they definitely will, where's the best place to find you?
0: Well, I'm on LinkedIn quite a lot. So it's Jack Hubbard. Just find me and connect with me. My email is j, uh, is jack at com. That's a real easy way to get a hold of me. Thank you, Fred, for having me. It was really fun.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you. Take care. Have a great rest of your day. Well, everyone, we hope you enjoyed episode 16 of Banking on Disruption. Don't forget, you can find show notes and a full transcript of the show on our website, bankingondisruption.com. New episodes drop every other Thursday, so we'll see you in two weeks. And in the meantime, don't forget to follow us on LinkedIn and Instagram at at bankingondisruption. Until next time, this is Fred Cavena, wishing you success in your digital pursuits.